Thank you, Ron, for leading us. Thank you for the privilege of being here uh, with the ABA, uh, ABBA. It's not a Swedish folk song singing group or anything like that. Uh, it's Alberta Baptist Association. Um, it's a group of churches that are all around Alberta that work in association with one another. That's why we're called the association. We don't uh, want to pretend that the ABA is some group, some you know, office that is in Edmonton. Jim and I and, and Andrea are working up there, and that's the ABA. That is not the ABA. We are the ABA. As we work in conjunction to serve the work of, of the kingdom all over the world, around Alberta for sure, but really all over the world, even as we've been praying, as we have attentiveness to things that are happening everywhere in this world. That's why the, the association's whole mission is to connect churches and help enable churches to build the kingdom of God, to impact the community around uh, wherever the churches are, and to build the kingdom all over the world. So praise the Lord that we can do that together. Amen? I mean, this is something of a great opportunity together. What a great word, together. To gather together. And it is just a great opportunity. And, and, and I'm, I'm just confessing something as we start today. My mouth is watering for those chocolate chips right about now. And so if I get distracted every once in a while, just, just forgive me and uh, we'll just take it from there. Um, it is a great privilege to be here. Um, <clears throat> it's a great uh, joy to worship with you. And uh, man, to see eight men up here uh, leading in worship, that is powerful uh, uh, not that I don't enjoy when women lead in worship, uh, don't get me wrong, but this is unusual, so it was really special. And, and to be able to, in a few minutes, gather around the table that we have been provided by our Lord himself. And we're going to be uh, opening up the word that will focus in particular today and again next Sunday on how we can see uh, the Lord's mission right through his own example of how he worked with people. Because everything about the Lord was about relationships. And in particular with people that we see in Scripture, we can gain a lot of understanding about how we operate in mission. So let's just pause once again to, to uh, ready our hearts. Lord, uh, your words, I pray, not mine, that would come through I pray that it is your spirit that would quicken our thoughts and our hearts, our intentions, and our responses in what follows. Lord, I do pray that you would bless uh, our time around this, your word, and help us to be not just hearers, but doers as well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Nobody could deny the sense of expectancy that was hanging in the air. It was a restless waiting filled with nervous energy. I had felt it many times before as I had joined the Baptist. Now and more and more people clustered around him every day, listening intently, yet the prevailing sense 
that something lingered just beyond their grasp was growing. Something about the Baptist had awakened musty memories of patriarchal figures from ages past. It wasn't just his unconventional clothing, his stern, eccentric ways. People were used to such images. For years observed the religiosity of the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and, and how many other holy men. Perhaps it was his eyes, John's eyes, at times flashing with excited ecstasy and then often smoldering with a naked intensity of a person compelled with an essential message. The message itself was so compellingly simple, really. The long-awaited one would soon be here. And John the Baptist was to herald his arriving. He's coming. The clusters of people wheeled as one, becoming mob-like as they hurriedly tried to get a vantage point along the riverbank. The cacophony of voices, tumbling words, yapping dogs, running feet echoed around the valley. The determined stride of the Baptist propelled him down the bank, right into the stream. For a moment, he surveyed the the rabbling crowd all around him. And then he declared, Repent! Kingdom of God's at hand! Each time he stood before that ever-growing crowd, it was as if he were unfolding history. Not just saying a few words. Momentarily, I became aware of a minor distraction taking place, though. Quickly, I, I shouldered my way through the crowd, the hair on the back of my neck standing up, warning, what's going to happen now? Always the back of my mind were fears of those Pharisees, the retaliation they had threatened. I approached the center of distraction. I noticed several of John's other disciples making his way, their way there too. Surprisingly, the distraction seemed to revolve around another man winding his way through the jostling crowd. There was nothing unique about his appearance from a distance. He looked no different than dozens of similarly aged men sprinkled among the bystanders. He was of average size, clothing befitting a common man. He walked purposefully, oblivious to the reactions of others around him. And I moved into step behind him, puzzled as the crowd parted for this man to pass. And when at last the stranger came into the Baptist's view, a look of recognition flashed between the two of them. The stranger nodded and with a smile spoke first. John, it's been a long time. Now I have need for you to baptize me. A look of confusion passed across the Baptist's countenance. In a split second of cosmic insight, his face was being removed from his normal complexion. 
as the stranger was becoming clearly transformed before his eyes with strokes of eternity flashing across his own countenance. You are the one. It's a statement made more of his own endorsement than for anyone else. His voice revealed a tone of wonder tinged with a a trace of shock. Once again, the stranger's eyes locked with the Baptist. And an unusual, harsh way subsided. In a moment, pregnant with mutual respect, I felt as if time and eternity were standing still as the stranger and the Baptist opened the curtain on an unusual divine drama. There can be no doubt that Jesus' baptism was pivotal. In the scope of of Jesus' life and ministry, but of course, along the course of time and eternity, his baptism signaled something was about to unfold. And there can be no doubt that Jesus' baptism was strategic and intentional on his part. He was demonstrating his identification with humankind. That he, Jesus, God himself, was not above others. He was one with the people. What was good for the goose is good for the gander, you know. He was setting an example that even though he was perfect, repentance from sin and renewal from the inside out was not needed for him, but it was a priority for people to wrestle with and to settle. A life worth living is a life submitted to the living God, was what Jesus was declaring. He was making a public statement announcing that he had come to a crucial juncture in his own life. And he was intent upon the very kingdom of God that John the Baptist was preaching about. And he was about to make an important move in his life, the first step in his journey into ministry. He was fulfilling a divine providential appointment whereby the Heavenly Father would literally voice his approval of Jesus within those moments. And his, uh, and his solidarity with Jesus, whereby the, the living God on high would declare his love for this Jesus. Where the three persons of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, would mysteriously, wonderfully come together in the fullness of time amid the elements of creation to carry out God's eternal and essential purpose. What an amazing moment that would have been. To have been there. But at one and the same time, while all of that was going on, Jesus was pulsating with the very heartbeat of the living God as he was living out the Creator's people passion, even in this moment, even in this strategic, eternal moment that was planned from before the beginning of time. Jesus was demonstrating something of such practicality in how he related with the Baptist during what is a most 
natural thing in all of Jesus' ministry, Jesus was right here with his cousin building relationship. And we observe him in this biblical account building relationship with this prophetic person, this one crying in a wilderness, this familiar person to him and increasingly to the populace, this John the Baptist. This dramatic account of Jesus' baptism is recorded in four of the Gospels. So you know that it has to have had significance with all of those inspired writers of Scripture. But as I said earlier, it provides a very important case study in how relationships need to function. Next Sunday, we're going to take a look at another case study in how relationships need to function as we are all working in the kingdom of God. How do we build relationships so as to become strong in those relationships and positive and valued and winsome and God-honoring and kingdom-building in all of our relationships? What does it mean to be excellent in relationships? We're going to learn something from Jesus in just these moments about that. Not to put aside the eternal significance of that baptism, but to zero in with microscopic vision upon how he worked with one particular person in relationship. Now, when we observe the interaction between Jesus and the Baptist, we discover that, first of all, Jesus submitted to John. It's significant that it was Jesus who initiated and insisted upon this baptism. It wasn't John. You know this. As you've read through the scriptures, as you heard them this morning, as you recall this account, John protested Jesus' request. In Matthew 3, 14, John tried to prevent Jesus saying, I have need to be baptized by you and you come to me. You know, notice Jesus' response in Matthew 3.15. Jesus said this to him, permit it at this time, for in this way it's fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. All righteousness. Now, there's that word righteousness. Sometimes we... We, we look at that and we know it has significance all throughout the pages of Scripture, all throughout the time of history, all throughout the course of Christian life and, and intention for you and for I. But it really just needs to always be simplified, translated into right relationship. What re- righteousness, what relationship needed to be fulfilled in a right kind of way? Well, certainly, of course, Jesus was referring to the the righteousness of God, to the right relationship that he, Jesus, was accomplishing between God and humankind. Of course, that was there. As his baptism catapulted him into public ministry, specifically designed to fulfill God's preordained redemptive purposes. Of course. That's what we're celebrating at the table. But most obviously and most immediately, Jesus seems to have been speaking to John about ensuring there's a right relationship between the two of them. To paraphrase, John, permit my baptism at this time to ensure that everything is right with us. Doesn't that sound like Jesus? 
All of heaven is watching this moment and Jesus is saying, is everything okay with you and me? <laughs> to John, why would he be so concerned in first place about his relationship with John? After all, and they were peers. They were cousins, born only months apart, born under supernatural circumstances. They were men with a mission, essentially the same mission, to obey the call of God, to accomplish the will of God, to operate in the power of God, to facilitate the kingdom of God. They were leaders who carried a message, who charismatically commanded a following, whose popularity was on the rise. They were buds. And there is no indication that anything negative or tense was ever happening between them. But Jesus did not take that status quo of relationship for granted. Because he knew that things in life change generally, and he also knew that some abrupt changes for him and for John were imminent. And Jesus was not about to let his relationship with John become a casualty of life's inevitable changes. Did you hear that? He didn't want what was going on with all of the changes in life and ministry and heavenlies and eternities to allow any casualty between him and John. So he took it on himself to move towards John and to publicly submit to John's ministry. So as to make one thing indisputably clear to all, to the general populace, to the Pharisees and Sadducees, to the priests and paupers, to the Romans and others roaming around, to the disciples of Jesus and the disciples of John, but most importantly to John himself, that he and John were tight, that he and John were not at some head-to-head power struggle, not engaged in some prophetic popularity contest. He and John were on the same team, working together, serving God side by side, He and John were in right relationship with one another. And in this, he is giving an example for leaders all over Christendom that if you want to build the kingdom, you have to work in team. Always. There is no exception to that. In fact, in this pivotal account, As we envision Jesus being baptized by John, we see the master, in order to build strong team, we see the master bending the knee to the messenger. We see the savior bending the knee to the servant. We see the king bending the knee to the cousin. Incidentally, the Hebrew word balrak, which is literally translated to bend the knee, or to kneel, is the same Hebrew verb which is usually translated to bless, Balrak. As we envision Jesus being baptized by John, we really see Jesus becoming a blessing to John. Every time we bend the knee in service to another, no matter what our status, no matter who we are in the leadership structures of our churches and of the kingdom and of the communities in which we live, every time we bend the knee to another, we declare to that other that we seek to bless them. When we examine the interaction between Jesus and the Baptist, we discover that Jesus first submitted to John. Second, Jesus 
separated from John. The very relational agenda that moved Jesus towards John to bless John is the same relational agenda which ultimately moved Jesus away from John to protect John. In the fourth gospel, as we heard read moments ago, we discover a rather obscure account of what uh, unfolded that after, sometime after Jesus was baptized, when Jesus and John, along with their respective groups of disciples, were conducting similar baptizing ministries in relatively close proximity to one another as a sort of family tag team building the kingdom of God. Perhaps predictably, the crowds were increasingly moving towards Jesus. We read in John 3.26 that some of the concerned disciples of John came to John and said to John, Rabbi, he, Jesus, who was with you beyond the Jordan. You remember the one that you bore witness? Behold, he is baptizing and all are going to him. All are coming to him. John's response was to explain, as we read in John 3.30, that powerful truth that all followers of Jesus must grasp and come to terms with. He, Jesus, must increase. I, John, must decrease. I get it. See, John understood just what Jesus understood, that it's about team in the kingdom of God. It's about working together. As Jesus had modeled submission and surrendered, so John was responding to his own followers, don't worry about that. Pay attention to him, to Jesus. Certainly John understood, and certainly John accepted his own supportive, facilitative role in the ministry of the Messiah. But when Jesus learned that his ministry, Jesus' ministry, and the ministry of John were being compared by public authorities, Jesus took action. We read in John 4, 1 and 3, that when therefore the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, what did Jesus do? He left Judea and departed again into Galilee. Of course, biblical scholars have speculated widely as to exactly why he left the region at that particular time. But clearly, it had something to do with the comparative analyses going on between his ministries and that of John, whereby John was drawing the short straw, so to speak. Jesus would have no part of that. Because Jesus was not bent on being successful. Jesus was focused on being righteous. In right relationship. And whenever ministry was doing well, whenever the occupation of his life was flourishing at the peril of jeopardizing any relationships at the expense of righteousness, Jesus had no problem, no hesitation in just letting the ministry go. And as a ministry person myself, that is an extremely difficult thing to do. Because we possess those ministries and then they possess us. It's my job. It's my calling. It's my church. It's my responsibility. And then we remember that it's all about him and his responsibility and his church and his calling. And I need to know that he cares about that too. 
That remains the essential measure of success in the kingdom of long Jesus' followers to this day. How are we doing relationally? The relationship between Jesus and the Baptist flourished and can truly be seen as righteous because the relationship between Jesus and the Baptist was characterized by honor. And the pages of scriptures are filled with repeated admonition to exercise honor in the context of our relationships, aren't they? Honor your father and mother. That's been around for a while. Honor the agent, Leviticus 19. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to the other in honor. Let marriages be held in honor among all. A message often put into the closet. Honor all men. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the king. I heard someone praying today for President Obama. Thank you. Honor the king. Honor those who are in charge. Our prime ministers, our premiers, our mayors. Leaders who have responsibility that have to make decisions that we have only pieces of. Honor them. Doesn't mean they're always right or that we always agree, but honor them. As we examine the original language of Scripture, the essence of honor comes into focus. There are two Hebrew words which are routinely translated honor. The first one is kabod, which literally means to make heavy or to make weighty. The other Hebrew word is hadar, which literally means to swell up or make bigger. The Greek word for honor is time, which literally means to strengthen. So if we apply these words, these Greek and Hebrew words, where we find them within the pages of Scripture, when we apply them to the relationship grid, the biblical notion of honor means to augment the life of another person. It means to build someone up. It means to increase the sense of value or importance or worth in another person. As such, honor accurately reflects the dynamic of relationship between Jesus and the Baptist. And honor should accurately reflect the dynamic of relationship between you and me. And between all who are true followers of Jesus. With this kind of honor, we make regular conscious decisions to strengthen another. With this honor, we make decisions to increase the peace, the shalom for another. We make decisions about how another is feeling valued or not. With this kind of honor, we make decisions to be like Jesus. Paul writes the Philippians, regard another as more important than yourself. Or another translation of the same, in humility, value others above yourself. This is absolutely core to what makes the gospel come alive in our day. And always it has been that way. That when we are around other people in the church and out of the church, in our families, out of our families, in our neighborhoods, in our business places, wherever, when we're around other people, 
they feel that they are more important to us than we are to ourselves. And it's not just because we give them some accolades, you know, and, you know, kind of just pour out words, but because they know we mean it. By how we serve, by how we live, by how we surrender, by how we forgive, by how we go the extra mile, by how we honor others. Of course, this kind of honor is not easy. It is this which becomes the challenge of all challenges in living life like Jesus. And that's why it is within the essential instructions of the early church when people gathered around the Lord's table, around the communion, that that very instruction kept being repeated pertaining how we relate in the ongoing dynamic of relationships within the body, for sure. Paul says to his, the followers of Jesus in, in, in Corinthians uh, chapter 11, 1 Corinthians 11, he says, you should examine yourself before eating the bread and drinking the cup. He's talking to all of us. For if you eat the bread and drink the cup without honoring, there it is, the body of Christ, the body of Christ isn't the bread and isn't the juice. The body of Christ is the other people that are eating with us. If we eat and drink without honoring the body of Christ, we're eating and drinking God's judgment upon ourselves. God is going to say, that's not the way it works, and I'm not going to allow that. And then he disciplines us. Rightly so. Like if one of my boys decides to poke fun at one of his brothers and it hurts, the father steps in and says, that's not going to happen. Sometimes amidst the incredible magnitude of all that Jesus accomplished, he rearranged history. He redeemed humanity. He reordered the cosmos. He blended the temporal and the eternal. He brought the kingdom of God into reality. In all of that, sometimes we miss his routine miracles. They are miracles of relationship. And every relationship that functions like Jesus is miraculous because it's not within our human capacity alone to do that. We can't function like Jesus if we don't have Jesus, can we? If his spirit isn't pulsating within us. But if it is, we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. Even honor that person who eh, doesn't really deserve it. You know? <laughs> that one who really rubs me the wrong way. That one who pokes me in the ribs. That one who hurt me. That one who keeps hurting me. That one who needs to be forgiven. That one who's a stranger and I don't even know. The profound wonder of, of observing Jesus in the scriptures is how he deliberately, relentlessly touched the lives of one and then another and then another, just like me, just like you, just like John the Baptist. In fact, Jesus' simple, transforming approach to make all things new may just be summed up in all it means to just simply honor another. 
We get it so complicated, but it's not. It's tough, but it's not complicated. So how are we doing? Relationally, that is. How well do we really see what's going on in the lives of others around us? Do we ensure that relationships come first, or do we really believe that people matter most? That is a challenge daily, isn't it? I mean, it catches us at times off guard. It catches me. Not very long ago, I was in a very full ministry journey day, meeting another pastor for coffee, talking about important matters of the church, working through some issues, helping along, and as we were in a busy, popular coffee shop with initials TH, not to be mentioning any names, they don't have any chocolate. Maybe they have chocolate chips. And as we were in there, an inebriated, disoriented young man walked in and was saying something incoherent to everybody, deliberately, albeit inappropriately, trying to get the attention of someone likely wanting some money. I don't really know. Because my response to this troubled, needy young man was the very same as everyone else in the coffee shop, to ignore him. Try not to make eye contact. Keep my focus on the coffee and the person I'm talking to. And that he would just move along. And the sad thing is he did. And I'll never know exactly what he wanted or needed. And of course I can rationalize it and say, well, you know, he was drunk. How would you deal with someone's drunk? Wait till he sobers up, maybe one day then you'll see him. You can be sure after I left the coffee shop that day, I had some repenting to do, some explaining with my Lord. As Jesus has been urging me to respond to simply be his hands and feet from the moment I, I get up in the morning to the time I go to bed, that I become aware of people and I pay attention to them. And even if they interrupt my life, that I ask him and talk with him about it, that I can't do everything for everyone, I know that, but I also knew he was asking me to do something for that man. Buy him a cup of coffee. Take away his embarrassment. Spend five minutes, sometimes intentionally, but usually inadvertently, our well-being, our self-protection, our public recognition, our place in the spotlight, our wins, our successes emerge as more important than others. And they effectively can serve to just keep Someone's esteem low, someone's value low, someone's importance off of our attentiveness. That's embarrassing. That's ungodly. I'm sure Jesus weeps with things like that. It doesn't even take much for us to do something when someone's health is waning, when someone's strength is sputtering, when someone's career is tenuous, when someone's future is uncertain, when someone's expectations are fragile. 
to resist the temptation to pass by, to just assume that someone else will deal with them. Because sometimes in our assessments, our own hurts rise up and we try, those things get in the way, or our fears invade, or hard feelings step in, or our experiences really get in, you know, we've learned how that distances develop, and it's just that easy. It's just that easy to be in our own ways, looking after our own selves, but it's not what Jesus does. He says, regard the other person as more important than yourself. And I go, oh, every day? Always? I am when I'm up on top of it, but what about when a coffee shop and I'm just waking up and I got someone I'm dealing with already and you know, well, you know, and like Jesus, we become attentive to the sensitivities of the relational dynamic. We become alert to the complexities of the human struggle and increasingly careful with what we are doing and how we're impacting others' lives, even those we don't know well, as well as those who we know very well, which is usually more difficult. That like Jesus, we take the initiative to counteract the potential erosion in human relationships. Like Jesus with John the Baptist, we take the initiative to correct the erosion of human relationships that are going on. We take the initiative to prioritize someone's well-being that could be damaged. Before relational challenges reach crisis proportions, we take precautions to evaluate our relationships and routinely affirm the value of those other people and purposefully honor them within the circles of our relational influence. We talk, and as well we should, among our churches in the Alberta Baptist Association incessantly about the importance of impacting our communities. And there's strategies as well there should be corporate strategies, what churches do together, things we do to pull people into our community and all those wonderful things. And I'm praising God for every strategy. Don't, don't let me hear, don't hear otherwise, please. But, but sometimes in all of that, we, we, we forget to be normal. Just normal with people. Not normal like the rest of the world is normal, kind of looking after ourselves, but normal like Jesus. That's why when, when he set the table, he'd use normal things. He didn't use filet mignon and, you know, <laughs> milkshakes or I don't know, whatever you really like. You know, he could have, he could have used something fancy-wancy. He used ordinary lunch meat, which was bread. An ordinary juice, which was wine. And, he, and at the table, he, these were normal things. And he reminded us in that, that it is the normal activities of honoring one person after another after another, which will change the course of history. Of history. Not just of my life or another person's life or the life of the church, but of History. Do we believe that? Because that's how the church has functioned and succeeded over millennia. And it will still work today. So God help us, I pray, as we move forward into a new season of ministry this fall. 
as we step once again with proper attentiveness to who you are. As we worship you, Lord, we give you what you're worth. That's everything. We follow your lead in every way as we seek to honor you as you honored others like John. We pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.